High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a Welcome to a new season of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. I came up with that branding phrase, the secret and or forgotten histories, seven years ago. And as this show has evolved, every time I've approached producing a new season, I've been careful to ask myself again what that phrase means and how it applies to what I'm doing. The last few seasons of this podcast have been about women whose names you may have heard of, but may not have known a ton about. Polly Platt, Hedda Hopper, Luella Parsons... These are names familiar to some people who are already knowledgeable about the history of Hollywood and basically unknown nowadays to everyone else. So these would be forgotten histories or never-known histories. But in a sense, those podcast seasons also revealed secret histories because I was able to tell the stories of those women through a different lens than would have been available to anyone telling those stories when they happened. For instance, in the case of Polly Platt, looking back at the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s from 2020, I was able to chronicle all the minute ways that Hollywood has changed in respect to creative and powerful women, and all the ways in which it has not, that are important to Polly's story. I call this a kind of secret history, because it reveals something that was invisible to the people living those stories in real time. A lot of time on this show, I'm revealing new facets of history by providing a perspective that's only available with the hindsight of 20 to 50 years. This season deals with that kind of secret history, in that we're going to be analyzing things that have never been secret or hidden at all, in a way that brings things that haven't been discussed much to the surface. But there's also another kind of secret history, 
And that's the kind that reveals the framework underneath or behind the glossiest facades of the 20th century. An infrastructure that is invisible when you're watching movies or listening to music. This season is partially about that kind of secret history. The other thing that sets this season apart from all but one of our previous seasons is that it's primarily about men. This season of You Must Remember This is about Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Hey, let's you and I do a song together now. Uh, 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 uh. And it ain't all Candyman and Bojangles. A singer, a dancer, an actor, a comedian, an impressionist, and an author. Mr. Entertainment. Here is Mr. Wonderful. Sammy Davis Jr. My most important meal is breakfast. If I'm not home by then, my wife really gets angry. Dean Martin is just a little bit lazy, prefers golf to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin. Singers, actors, TV stars, and nightclub performers who became rich and famous selling a brand of mid-20th century cool that feels distinctly uncool in 2021. Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin each reached a pinnacle of their careers as a supporting act for a man who was at one point their mutual idol, Frank Sinatra. Sinatra, Martin, and Davis all grew up marginalized in Wasp America. But while Sinatra acquired a status summed up by his nickname, the Chairman of the Board, Dean and Sammy had very different experiences of power in the 20th century. In this season of You Must Remember This, we'll explore Davis and Martin's movies, music, and lives through the lens of how each man navigated the minefields of race, masculinity, and the American dream. And as you may have guessed, a lot of this season will have to do with organized crime. But more specifically, it has to do with the fact that the line between enterprises and behavior that we can brand as obviously criminal and enterprises and behavior that is and or was considered to be totally mainstream and acceptable within free market capitalism, show business, and or American democracy is, shall we say, porous at best. Before we get into these issues vis-a-vis -vis Sammy and Dino, I want to share a couple of quick examples that I came across in my research for this season, which speak to how easily underground power flows into the corporate power structure, muddying the waters between things our culture tries to put in a box labeled bad and wrong, and the things our culture celebrates and promotes. They both involve North American dynasties, founded by men who made fortunes early in their careers collaborating with organized crime, which allowed their descendants to continue to build generational wealth and acquire outsized influence through the media. Example number one involves the Annenberg family. You might have seen the Annenberg name on anything from all manner of PBS programming, which the Annenberg Foundation underwrites, to various museums and performing arts centers spread around Los Angeles. 81-year-old Wallace Annenberg, 
is responsible for most of that, but the family money predates her maturity. Wallace's father, Walter, inherited a few publications from his father, Moses Annenberg, most notably the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was a respectable daily newspaper, and the Daily Racing Form, which was not. In the spring of 1929, Moses Annenberg had been invited to Atlantic City by Al Capone, where Annenberg was to be the guest of honor at a conference otherwise made up of the most powerful members of the biggest mafia families from across the country. Capone had collaborated with Annenberg on a plan to transfer full control of the horse betting racket to those mafia families by restricting distribution of the daily racing form, which was then the only publication containing race results and the only way for most bookies or gamblers to get those results short of attending the race, to clubs and casinos controlled by those mafia families. This proposal was accepted by all the crime bosses, and it made Moses Annenberg a very rich man, at least until the late 1930s, when he went to prison for tax evasion and was forced to pay what was then the largest single tax fraud penalty of all time. Moses was released from prison in June 1942 and almost immediately died of a brain tumor. Walter Annenberg took over his father's newspaper business with the transparent intent of making it fully legitimate and respectable. He did, while also making it as profitable as ever by creating TV Guide. But Walter only had a publishing company on which to build on because of the foundation built by his father through dealing with the mafia. Example number two. During Prohibition, gangsters in New York and Chicago bought much booze from Seagram's, a Canadian outfit run by a guy named Samuel Bronfman. The profits Seagram's earned during Prohibition by selling product to gangsters helped the company grow into an international corporation, which not only led the space of legal alcohol import and export for most of the 20th century, but became so profitable that they branched out into other industries, including oil and entertainment. Samuel's son, Edgar, born during Prohibition, went on to run the family business, as did his son, Edgar Jr. In the 1990s, Edgar Jr. oversaw Seagram's acquisition of MCA, a former talent agency which had itself acquired Universal Studios, as well as the record label Polygram, which was folded into the newly named Universal Music Group. There are a lot of problems with media consolidation, and more problems that stem from a company organized to sell liquor branching out to sell artistic products like movies and music. Universal Music Group's Wikipedia page has a whole section called Legal Issues, tracking the shady and illegal business practices of the firm just in the 21st century. The first and perhaps most mob-esque entry has to do with a CD price-fixing scheme Universal was found to have participated in after Seagram's acquired their holdings. They weren't the only record company to engage in this scheme. 
But then, they also weren't the only record company to behave like a cartel or to have a legacy of direct collaboration with the mafia. Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. both only had the careers they had because of the mafia. As we'll see, the two entertainers related to mobsters very differently, but they both understood, at the end of the day, where the real power lay in the music business, the nightclub business, the casino business, and even certain movie studios. Sam and Dino's different ways of handling this reality spoke to their basic difference in temperament and, more obtusely, the differences in what each man was looking for out of being alive. Dean Martin liked to sing. It was easy for him, just as looking conventionally handsome was effortless for him, as was being the funniest, coolest guy in almost any room or on any stage he walked onto. I love Dean Martin as an actor and a screen presence, and some of my favorite movies, from Some Came Running to Kiss Me Stupid, wouldn't be the same without him. But figuring out what I like about him has been a challenge. I can't pretend he had a great passion for the art of making music or movies or performing. He didn't have anything he was dying to say with his work. He got to a point in early middle age in which he realized that he could get away with sharing his talent without sharing anything of himself, and that doing exactly that was enough to make a really good living. And so he would go to work for just as long as he needed to, and then he would go home. As Shirley MacLaine once put it, Dean, quote, was nice to everyone. He just didn't want nice to go on too long. Sammy Davis Jr. never wanted anything nice to ever end. Sammy began his career as a little boy, tap dancing as fast as he could, laundering attention into currency that kept his family afloat and alive. As he matured, he turned himself into a dazzling, multi-hyphenate star whose act encompassing singing, dancing, impressions, and even monologues, earned him a spot on stage next to the greatest pop singer of the 20th century. And when you watch footage of the so-called Rat Pack today, Sammy's total virtuosity usually makes Sinatra's act seem kind of one note. And yet, Sammy never had Sinatra's security, not financially, not internally, and in some senses, he was always a vaudeville kid. When he needed money, which was most of the time, he went to work, but he also loved to be loved. He had to connect to other people on stage, and when he got off stage, he couldn't bear for the feeling of connection to end, which is why, for most of his life, he partied hard. When he felt misunderstood, which was often, especially during the second half of his career, it left him heartbroken. Sammy wanted to be known. Dean, after a certain point, just wanted to be left alone. Of course, the biggest, inescapable difference between them 
is that Sammy Davis Jr. was a black man in America in the 20th century, while Dean Martin was white. Now, Martin was a first-generation Italian-American who changed his name and got plastic surgery on the road to fame because while there isn't a ton of visible prejudice against Italian-Americans nowadays, there sure used to be. As we'll see during this season, the perception of the ethnic group Dean was born into changed so that while he was considered not white at birth in 1917, by the time he died in 1995, what was left of a cultural prejudice against Southern European immigrants had either dissipated or else it had been buried so far under the surface of the culture that on a day-to-day basis, it didn't much matter. Dean Martin died a white man. Sammy Davis Jr. did not. Much changed in terms of what it was like to live as a black man in America between his childhood in the 1920s and his death in 1990. But they didn't change all that much. Though he often tried to escape and transcend the realities he was subjected to by the color of his skin, he never fully could. Eventually, Dean's ethnicity ceased to matter in the public imagination. But Dean also had the privilege to make a few changes, which accelerated that process. Sammy simply did not. Sammy Davis Jr. spent literal decades on stage with two Italian guys. Frank and Dean were born into a world in which they weren't considered white and on the race, class, gender ladder that is life in America, as late as the 1940s, they were closer to where Sammy was than to where you'd find the average powerful white man. But over the years, the world changed. And so while they didn't stop being Italian, being Italian ceased to be a problem. Sammy got to enjoy wealth and celebrity beyond that of most men who looked like him while he was alive. But for most people who did look like him, the rung on the ladder stayed in pretty much the same place. Think about how it felt to be Sammy Davis Jr. watching the distinction between being Italian-American and being American-American disappear before the term African-American is even in widespread use while he's still afraid to perform in the South, because there, white people will call him an N-word. Or they'll do something worse. A lot of the writing I consulted about Sammy in making this season suggested that he had internalized the racism of the world he grew up in. For the first 30-plus years of Sammy's career, he lived in a culture that taught him that the only way for a Black person to achieve wealth and fame in the entertainment industry was to make white people like them. That was the only image of Black celebrity that was modeled for him. You had to be accepted into white spaces if you wanted to live freely. And then, in the 1960s, that culture changed. It hadn't happened overnight. But to Sammy, it felt like it had. And suddenly, he was being made to feel by members of his own race that he was a betrayer. I've worked all my life toward the day when no white man could tell me how to live, 
He wrote in his 1965 autobiography, Yes, I Can. Now, the colored people are trying to do it. We will get to all of that and much more over the course of the next eight weeks. Today, we'll talk about Sammy and Dino's childhoods and early years as entertainers, years which formed their talent, their stage personas, and taught them their first lessons in the racket that was, and is, the music business. Join us, won't you, for part one of Sammy and Dino. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. A major source for this season is Dino, a doorstop biography of Dean Martin by music critic-slash-historian Nick Toshes. The first chapter of the Toshes book begins in Abruzzo, Italy, which allows the author to both describe Martin's ancestry and also to situate his subject as a born outsider, the product of an immigrant community that was a discriminated class in early 20th century America. Italian-Americans and Italians in America stuck together and helped their own. Communities like Steubenville, Ohio, where Dean grew up, were Little Italy's, and not in the sense that tourists would go there to eat pizza. Born Dino Crescetti, the future Dean Martin didn't begin speaking English until he was five years old when his mother made him go to school. 
Dino didn't like school. He liked movies, especially cowboy movies. Dino wanted to be a cowboy, like Tom Mix. His Italian uncles laughed at him, told him that Tom Mix lived in Los Angeles. That hardly dimmed the appeal. Dino's mother Angela taught him that men should not show their emotions, should never complain or show weakness of any sort. Dino's father ran a local barber shop, which may have been a meeting place for just those sorts of men, but Guy Crescetti let his wife dominate. For better or worse, Dino would become the kind of man his mom wanted him to be. Even as a kid, he was enigmatic, unknowable. He liked the part of high school that was taking a girl out for a soda, or to the record shop, or to a dance. High school intimacy, intense but superficial, was his kind of intimacy. But he didn't like anything else about school, and by the age of 16, he had dropped out and was pursuing a short-lived career as a boxer under the name Kid Crescetti. Growing up in a steel town in which the workers were devastated by the Depression, while the owners, steel barons like Andrew Mellon, only amassed more wealth and power, Dean saw firsthand the inequality and corruption of mainstream capitalism. Somehow, the underground economy felt more honest, or at least, it was a game he had a better chance of playing to win. He began seriously gambling in junior high, and in class, he would show off the shiny silver dollars that were his winnings. Growing up in the industrial Midwest as an Italian during Prohibition, he was well aware that his hometown was rife with bootleggers, brothels, and card rooms. From birth, the mafia was a presence in Dean's everyday life. He knew from young adulthood on what their business practices looked like, so he could spot those same tactics when they showed up in supposedly non-criminal contexts. In his book on Martin, Tosh's repeatedly references the idea that the day-to-day business of organized crime consists of an act that, when practiced by quote-unquote legit businesses, is not considered criminal at all. When men with the power to facilitate or protect the earnings of other men take a cut of those men's business in the context of the mafia, it's called a skim. Tosh's uses the phrase, wet their beaks, to refer to the compulsion on the part of the skimmers to quench their thirst for money by taking small amounts from as many pools as possible. As Dino would learn, maybe compared to most other organizations, organized criminals were known to wet their beaks in a more aggressive, even violent fashion. But when you compare the beak wetting of gangsters to the beak wetting of people in the entertainment industry, it may just be a draw. When Prohibition ended in 1932, when Dino was 14, these underground businesses flourished all the more. It would be more than a decade before Las Vegas became a destination. In the meantime, vice proliferated closer to home. 
Dean's hometown of Steubenville was known as Little Chicago. Chicago then being the capital of the mob, to the extent that if one was said to have friends in Chicago, that was a well-known euphemism for having connections to the mob. Dean didn't have any actual friends in Chicago. At least, not yet. Most young men in Steubenville couldn't see that far out of Steubenville. Being a boy in that town usually meant getting a job at a steel plant, which Dean did at age 16, and spending one's nights drinking, whoring, and betting. Eventually, Dino turned his nightlife into a full-time job by becoming a card dealer at a gambling joint hidden in the back of a cigar store. Dino was part of the first generation of teenagers who could readily listen to music broadcast in their cars or at home on a phonograph. Both radio and records had steadily gained popularity over the past couple of decades. And by the time Dean dropped out of school in the early 1930s, recorded popular music was fully ubiquitous. He sang in public for the first time at age 17 and soon started singing regularly at local dances. One of his earliest gigs was singing in a local men's club's minstrel show in which all the performers, including Dino, were Italians in blackface. By now, jazz was transforming popular music But Dino wasn't, at that age, interested in Black performers. He was obsessed with Bing Crosby and modeled his singing voice on Crosby's. In 1939, Dino Crescetti was hired as a singing croupier at a place called The Jungle Inn, outside of Cleveland. From there, a band leader named Ernie McKay offered Dino $40 a week to go on tour with his outfit. Dino worried this would be a step down in lifestyle. As a small-town croupier, he could skim $40 a week easily, and that was on top of his official salary. But he took the gig, borrowing a stage name from another Italian singer and calling himself Dino Martini. An associate of a bigger band leader, Sammy Watkins, saw Dino performing with McKay at a Chinese restaurant and that led to a better gig. Watkins, who had Americanized his own name from Watkovitz, liked Dino's style, but told him Martini wasn't enough. He needed a name that would allow audiences to pretend he wasn't Italian. This was in 1940. Why was it a dangerous thing to be perceived to be Italian in 1940? The answer goes back a lot further than that. You could trace it to Italy, where there was much prejudice against Italians with darker skin tones, particularly when they came from southern regions like Sicily, which are closer to Africa. This colorism was imported to the U.S. in the 19th century as part of a general panic that there were too many immigrants of the wrong kind. In the American South, Newly arrived Italians often accepted manual labor jobs that were associated with a post-emancipation black workforce, while showing little interest in assimilating with white society. The slur WAP 
comes from white overseers overhearing Italian workers tease one another for being guapo, which was a word used to puncture the uppity airs and dandy dress of a peasant-turned-boss. White Americans with relative power appropriated the term and filed it with the kinds of slurs used to demean black workers. There's an interesting mirror between the origin of this anti-Italian word and the origin of the idea of Jim Crow, which, as we discussed in our season on Song of the South, came from a racist caricature of a formerly enslaved black man who is perceived to think too highly of himself. The connection, negative in the minds of racists, between the Italian immigrants and the black, formerly enslaved population, was exacerbated by the fact that communities of newly arrived Italian immigrants did often bond, intermix, intermarry, and conduct business with black people. This led to lynchings of blacks and also Italians. One estimate holds that 50 Italians were lynched in the American South between 1890 and 1920. Meanwhile, in the North, supposedly reputable newspapers like the New York Times were disparaging all Southern Italian immigrants as, quote, ignorant and verminous, and specifically referring to Sicilians as rattlesnakes and speculating that Italians were natural-born criminals. The rhetoric and anti-Italian violence got so bad that the Columbus Day holiday was instituted in the 1890s in an effort to appease Italy, who were threatening war. And yet, the racism persisted. The KKK, newly revived in 1915, wanted to remove both Italians and Catholics from the American gene pool. And a law was passed in 1924, pushed by eugenicists, that set tight quotas on immigration from Italy, effectively barring it, except in cases of family reunification. The mainstream media of the 1920s was full of stereotyping of Italians and Italian-Americans as criminals, thanks to the exploits of gangsters such as Al Capone and the trial of Sacco and Vanzetti, two immigrant anarchists who were accused of armed robbery and executed after a virulently anti-Italian media circus that lasted almost a decade. A lot of this stuff had happened in Dino's lifetime, and protests, racist editorials, and acts of violence against Italians persisted through the 1930s. In 1940, when Dino hooked up with Watkins, the first single featuring Frank Sinatra had just come out. Watkins convinced Dino that it was probably a novelty, a one-hit wonder. A guy named Frank Sinatra might as well have been named Calamari Linguini. War was on in Europe and the Italians were on the wrong side. Better to be safe than sorry. So Dino Crescetti became Dean Martin. In later years, Martin would embrace his Italianness, even lampoon it. But for now, he passed for something else. This would not be an option available to Sammy Davis Jr., although he would at various points in his career be accused of pretending like it was. 
One thing Sammy could do was make subtle revisions to his personal history. And so in the 1960s, when he became ultra-famous and started telling his mythologized version of his life story, he claimed his mother, Elvira, was Puerto Rican. He thought this would be more acceptable than the truth, which was that Elvira Sanchez was of Afro-Cuban heritage. Born in New York City in 1905, Elvira became a dancer in a traveling show called Holiday in Dixie, led by a black vaudeville stalwart named Will Mastin. In 1925, she began a relationship with another dancer in the troupe, Sammy Davis. Elvira gave birth to Sammy Davis Jr. in December 1925. Sammy Davis Sr. and Elvira Sanchez were from different worlds. Elvira's mother Luisa sometimes passed for white, and at a time when the entertainment industry was extremely segregated, she worked on the white side as a personal maid for Broadway star Lorette Taylor. Elvira had been drawn to the black show business scene in Harlem, and against the wishes of her mother, she began working as a chorus girl at age 19. Louisa had sent her daughter to Catholic school in the hopes that she wouldn't have to sing and dance for her supper, and also to give her daughter a set of values, which she didn't want to see tarnished by the anything goes vibes of 1920s nightlife. I don't want you to go in show business, Louisa told her daughter, because you are going to bring back a baby. Sammy Sr. was from Wilmington, North Carolina, and he had left his hometown in 1921 in flight from the police, who he believed were looking for him after he got in a dispute with a white shop owner over a hat. He ended up in New York City, where, with no training, he began winning dance contests, which led to a job with Will Mastin, a ladies' man with nothing but dancing to fall back on. Sam Davis was exactly the kind of guy Elvira's mother had warned her about. When Elvira found out she was pregnant, she and Sammy eloped. She danced until she was physically too big to do so, then returned to Harlem to give birth. As soon as she could dance again, Elvira was back on the road with Sammy Sr., and baby Sammy was left to live with friends of his mom until his father's mother, Rosa, took him in. Elvira would sometimes visit her son, but they didn't bond. Elvira, like her mother, was light-skinned, and she was aware that her mother was racist against those with darker skin, who she would call piccaninnies. Some in Elvira's family believed she had been drawn to Sammy Davis as a kind of rebellion against her mother. But now Elvira was back at work as a dancer, at a time when even for a woman of her skin tone, it was common to use skin lightening products to further blur the issue of race. Just as it was better for Dino Crescetti to call himself Dean Martin so that audiences could pretend he wasn't Italian, for a dancer like Elvira, light skin was valued because it allowed white audiences to pretend she wasn't black. But Elvira's son was unquestionably black. She was known to refer to her son as, quote, a little monkey. The Davises, in turn, called Elvira, quote, that half-white bitch. 
Elvira would dance on the road until 1941, and Sammy would grow up mostly without her. In 1928, with Sammy still living with his maternal grandmother, Elvira gave birth to a daughter named Ramona, who was deposited with Elvira's sister. Sammy and Ramona's parents soon split up. Sammy Sr. decided to take his toddler son on the road with him. By then, vaudeville was dying. The venues were being replaced by new theaters outfitted for talking pictures, and acts who could do anything that could translate over a microphone were moving into radio. The odd men out were pure dance acts like Will Mastin's. Mastin was a flash dancer. This didn't have anything to do with the Jennifer Beals movie. It was just a type of acrobatic tap dancing which was gone in a flash. These types of performers were only given a few minutes on stage, usually as the opening act, and they had to make the most of their time by packing a lot of spectacle in. With changing times, Mastin's troupe had been whittled down to just himself and Sammy Sr. In late 1929, three-year-old Sammy joined the show. The Will Mastin trio survived the Depression, just barely, because the child gave them just enough novelty to make the act a minor draw. When they needed more novelty, they put Sammy in blackface. Sometimes, to play venues that served liquor and thus were closed to minors, they pretended Sammy Jr. was an adult with dwarfism. In fact, Sammy was the right age for elementary school, which he would never attend, and Mastin and Sammy Sr. were two old-timers hanging on in show business longer than they otherwise would have by milking the kid for all he was worth. Sammy Davis Jr. had no formal education, but he proved to be a quick study. He devoured movies, music, and comic books. He practiced impressions of famous performers, Al Jolson, Jimmy Cagney. He'd watch other performers from the wings of the theater and incorporated their moves and mannerisms into his own act. He developed a very specific set of skills. He could copy anyone doing anything, and in a very short time, he could do it as well or better than the person he was stealing from. A part of him believed that by practicing imitations of movie stars like Humphrey Bogart, he was practicing to be a movie star. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. 
and it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. In 1941, the Will Maston Trio played Detroit on the same bill as the Tommy Dorsey Band. Frank Sinatra was singing with Dorsey's band at the time, And backstage, 25-year-old Frank introduced himself to 15-year-old Sammy and offered him a handshake. This was a surprising thing for a white performer to do at the time. A black act could share a bill with a white act, but that was supposed to be all they shared. Frank made things different between he and Sammy. At Frank's invitation, he and Sammy ate together between shows, shooting the shit about their respective experiences of show business. It was only a few shows, a couple of days, and once their acts went their separate ways, Sinatra and Davis wouldn't speak again for years. But Sammy never forgot Frank's earliest gestures of kindness, and they informed how he related to Sinatra decades later, when they became actual friends and colleagues. Their relationship was not always smooth sailing. Sammy spent the rest of his lifetime seeking Sinatra's approval and occasionally bristling at Frank's callous displays of his own power. There were falling outs and a lot of hurt feelings. Sinatra gave Sammy unquestionable career boosts and undeniable companionship. He also took advantage of Sammy and publicly mocked him. And for the most part, Sammy took it with a smile on his face. That dynamic between those two men and how it was triangulated through Dean Martin's very different relationship with both of them will be a big part of this season. When Sammy first met Sinatra, Frank was in the middle of his first flush of fame. As the singer for the Harry James Orchestra, Sinatra had been given a talking to, much like the one Dean got in 1940. But Sinatra refused to change his name to Frankie Sadden or anything else. He then joined Tommy Dorsey's band. And by 1941, the year he met Sammy, Sinatra had racked up 12 top 10 singles. Each time a new one came out, Dean would go to a record store where a friend worked, and together they would stand there in the store and listen to Sinatra's 78s on repeat. Frank was swiftly replacing Bing Crosby as a model Dean could emulate. Frank Sinatra would change the game for Italian-Americans in show business. He didn't change his name like Dean did, but in other ways, he allowed people who hated Italians to pretend that he wasn't that kind of Italian by defying many of the negative stereotypes about Italians that were still prevalent in the culture. For one thing, when he became famous at age 25, Sinatra looked more like he was 16. He didn't look threatening, he wasn't swarthy, 
He dressed in clean-cut suits and he wasn't flashy. He wasn't loud or aggressive. Using the microphone as an instrument, he sang softly, like a heartbroken kid. He won over teenage girls and then their moms. Men followed after Frank had already made their women swoon. Dean could inspire swoon too, but the first thing that would really separate him from Sinatra was that he didn't try to make it happen. A childhood spent around drunks and gamblers had taught him that there were more men in night spots than women, and it was the male pockets that had the money. So Dean concentrated on singing to men. It quickly became apparent that the more Dean ignored the women in the audiences, the more they loved him. While performing in a Cleveland hotel in early 1941, Dean met Elizabeth McDonald, an 18-year-old Irish-American girl who became the first girlfriend Dean brought home to meet his mother. The hometown boys were impressed by Dean's catch. Yeah, she carried herself proud, man, Dean later recalled. Everybody said she looked like a movie star. When Watkins booked a tour for that fall, Dean and Betty married so that the two Catholic youngsters could travel together and escape damnation. In 1942, 25-year-old Dino Crescetti became a father for the first time. His son was named Stephen Martin. Dino would never use the name Crescetti again. According to their daughter, Dina, Betty would play a key role in getting Dino ready for primetime as a performer. She taught him basic etiquette, like how to eat soup in front of important company. And she served as a speech coach of sorts, getting him to say, singing, instead of singing. Them and those, instead of dem and does. Dean's top salary singing for Watkins was $65 a week. Shortly after signing a new contract with the band leader, Dean was offered what looked to him like a better opportunity. Sinatra had dropped out of a nightclub gig in New York, leaving a joint called the Rio Bamba in desperate need of a solo singer. The pay was more than double, $150 a week. But in order to take the job, which would mean leaving the band he already worked for in the lurch, Dean had to agree to give 10% of his earnings to Watkins for the next seven years. He also had to sign a contract with the agency MCA, which represented the nightclub. That meant signing away another 10% of his total earnings for seven years. Dean usually got paid in cash and spent the cash before he could pay commissions. So less than a year into this arrangement, he was in arrears to both Watkins and MCA. In an effort to get out of that jam, Dean signed with a manager, Dick Richards, who could advance him money against the proceeds of future gigs. Dick took another 10%. A few months later, unhappy with the Richards situation, Dean traded him for another manager, Lou Perry. Perry promised higher-paying gigs, but he also took a huge cut, 35%. Then Martin hooked up with Lou Costello of Abbott & Costello. Dean signed away another 25% of his earnings to the comic in order to be able to borrow $1,000 to pay his mounting debts. In 
Through all this, Dean's profile was rising in the New York club world, but that drew a brighter spotlight to his actual profile. His Italian nose was starting to become a problem. In July 1944, an item in the New York Mirror branded Martin, quote, the Schnozola Sinatra. The first movies starring Sinatra were just starting to hit theaters in 1944. There was only one other openly Italian-American leading man in American movies, and that was Don Amici. Costello, who was also partly Italian, thought Martin had a future in movies, but only if he took one step towards assimilation that neither Sinatra nor Amici would take. He had to have a nose job. The procedure wasn't secret. The Mirror, the same publication that ribbed his schnozola, declared Dean's, quote, nose operation a big success. Dean's plastic surgeon, of course, was only one of many who would take a cut out of Martin. By August 1944, Dean Martin had leveraged 105% of his earnings to half a dozen entities who were entitled to skim their percentage before a dollar hit the singer's own wallet. As his professional prospects climbed, his economic forecast seemed to be going in the opposite direction. Matters became slightly more simplified when Perry and Costello colluded to buy out Dean's MCA contract. But there was no getting around the strange, inverted pyramid of this branch of the entertainment business. From the outside, it looked like the talent was at the top. A singer like Dean was the draw that brought patrons into clubs in the first place. They were the starting point for this economy. But in fact, in terms of power and earnings, the talent was at the bottom of a network of racketeers and profiteers who owned the performer and stood to make money for doing little to nothing while the supposed star put on a happy face to hide the fact that they were asset poor and worked to the bone. Most stars of this stature were actually in debt, borrowing against future performances, even signing big money contracts that would lock them up far into the future, knowing that the money had already been spent. If the money didn't go to paying off loans and commissions, it went to selling the illusion of stardom, to dressing like a star, to buying everyone rounds of drinks every night after every show, because that's what the star does. Both Sammy and Dean would have this experience of drawing no real wealth for their work, of performing labor that went to paying off other men, because that was the only way they could get the cash they needed when they needed it. But as we'll see, one of these stars managed to control the shell game and then ultimately break out of that dynamic for good. The other got trapped in the racket. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. In 1944, both Sammy and Dino were drafted. Dean was a married man with two kids and a career that was actively losing him money. 18-year-old Sammy essentially hadn't ever left home, in so much as he had a home to leave. Since he was three years old, he had spent virtually every night of his life with Sammy Sr. His father was his boss, and he was his father's meal ticket. Sammy was petrified, but Sammy Sr. and Will Maston were even more scared. What would happen to little Sammy, who was then five foot three and a half inches and would never get any taller? Without Sammy, what would happen to them? Sammy reported for duty in San Francisco in August 1944 and was sent to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Sammy had faced racism before. He and his father had been called the N-word, had been kicked out of diners for trying to sit with white friends, had been denied hotel rooms on freezing winter nights at establishments that refused to serve those people. But because most everyone they encountered in show business was not openly racist, Sammy had been shielded from a lot. He was not prepared for how he would be treated in a military unit that had only recently and reluctantly been integrated. The few incidents of racism he had faced previously were doubled in his first few hours in Wyoming. White recruits complained about having to serve alongside him and the one other black man in his unit. Right away, a white boy cruelly broke Sammy's gold watch, a going-away gift that his father had drained his meager savings to acquire. Then they broke his nose. They found reasons to hit him constantly. They painted, I am an N-word on his chest and coon on his forehead, in white paint that dripped onto his eyebrows. Once, they tricked him into drinking from a beer bottle that they had filled with urine. On the Arsenio Hall show in 1989, Arsenio asked Sammy if these things had really happened. Before warned that in the clip you're about to hear of his response, Sammy uses the N-word in the context of quoting those who had used the slur against him. So my being gregarious led to the guys, gave them all the food for fodder they needed to say, hey man, get that nigga now. Stop him. Mm -hmm. And the more they said get him, the more I used the, what the man upstairs gave me to fight him back. 
because I figured I'm too small. I, I tried physically. I got my nose broke three times, man. Trying. No, that's it. It was broke. It didn't. <laughs> it was never like this, you know, but it was a little better than it is now. But I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't deal with it. And it hurt and nobody was there. They were there, but I'm saying you couldn't do anything about it. You had nobody to back you up. Not the government, not the people, not the city. Sammy may not have felt like he had anyone to turn to to stop the abuse, but he did find a supporter in George M. Cohen Jr., the son of the songwriter who had contributed dozens of patriotic standards to the American songbook. From Over There, to You're a Grand Old Flag, to Yankee Doodle Boy. Cohan believed in Sammy and asked him to collaborate on a big show he was planning with the Army Band. Sammy sang, Sammy danced, Sammy did his impressions of Jimmy Cagney, Boris Karloff, and Frank Sinatra. Sammy was soon transferred from latrine duty into special services and allowed to make performing for troops his Army job. He spent eight months on tour from base to base, as he put it in his first autobiography, gorging myself on the joy of being liked. Men who had tortured him a few months earlier looked at him differently when he was on stage. He didn't fully understand it, but he thought he could weaponize it. He thought he could use the connections he made to his audiences to change their minds to change a racist world. In the spring of 1945, Sammy was released from the army. He'd rejoin the Will Maston trio, and together they'd face a world that had changed, but not that much, not for them. Meanwhile, Dean was sent to Akron, Ohio for training. 14 months later, he was sent home, having been classified 4F due to a hernia. He, too, went back to the gig life. Dean began a stint performing at a club called The Glass Hat in the Belmont Plaza Hotel on Lexington and 49th Street. There, Dean sang a set composed largely of songs popularized by Bing Crosby, including San Fernando Valley, a hokey jingle penned for a forgotten Roy Rogers movie, and Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby, co-written by Black singer and saxophonist Louis Jordan. The song was loosely inspired by one sung by tap dancer Bilbo Jangles Robinson over a decade earlier in the low-budget, all-Black musical, Harlem is Heaven. So Dean was now making a living filling in for Frank Sinatra, singing his versions of songs that had been popularized and, in some cases, deracinated by Bing Crosby. He hadn't found a niche or a style of his own yet, and may have continued as a B-team stand-in, if not for another act on the bill at the glass hat, named Jerry Lewis. In our next episode, we'll talk about what happened when Martin met Lewis. Plus, Sammy Davis Jr. leaves the army more determined than ever that he's destined for greatness. Faced with an entertainment world that was still largely segregated, he'd spend the next five years proving he belonged in an otherwise almost entirely white Hollywood. Join us for that next week, won't you?
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We are on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. Perfect for the holidays. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast and get lots of bonus content. You must remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and sometimes glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all of the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.